Tessa Holes, editor of The Project Room. This month, I interviewed visual artist and educator Jennifer Wofford. Jennifer's work explores hybridity and history, and we discussed how memory and monument are present in all of her work, whether she's painting Filipino nurses or musing on volcanic eruptions. So join us as we talk about durians, portable toilets, and what it means to make work as a mixed-race Asian-American artist. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm sitting here today with Jennifer Wofford, who has invited me into her San Francisco home to talk about her work. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to meet with me. Thanks for coming over. Mm-hmm. I should also mention she's given me coconut water. She's, and, and she's given me beer. Yes. So we're even. Great. I'm going to put you on the spot, and I'm, I'm going to quote your own artist statement at you and uh, ask you to expand on it a bit. So in talking about your work, you say, I make work that addresses hybridity, authenticity, history, and global culture in a broad sense. Can you talk a bit more about those overlapping histories? Um, this also goes right into some of the teaching stuff. Like, I teach a global perspectives and contemporary art class. And um, an essay I read, because uh, I'm constantly updating this reader, because no particular textbook exists for the way I want to teach this class. Um, so every semester I'm like cursing and pulling my hair out and trying to find, you know, scrambling to put together new essays and uh, articles. Anyway, there's a piece by this uh, German historian named Hans Belting, who sounds like a great supervillain. Um, and it basically talks about how 1989 becomes this year of rupture, um, really changes so much politically and globally because of, you know, the bringing down of the Iron Curtain to what was happening in Tiananmen Square. Um, and of course I'm blanking on a few things, but basically it seems to be now, 25, 26 years later, looked at as this kind of moment of change. For me, it also happens to be when I graduated from high school and turned 18. <laughs> but that's that autobiography is uh, eminently uninteresting in the scope of things, but it does sort of suggest that I was formed in this era. Mm-hmm. Um, and 1989 is also the year in which um, this big earthquake happened in the, in the Bay Area, the Loma Prieta earthquake. And I think that that now, especially from the perspective of seeing the, the ways in which the tech industry has changed things, and just or not even just that, because they're so easily scapegoated for everything, but just, you know, 25 years of, you know, other kinds of immigration and, and or just people who've moved here who don't have these kinds of collective histories. So I think, for me, 89 has somewhere lodged itself in my, in my brain as, or in my logic as having this relationship between all these kinds of ways in which things are sort of dismantling in them. I don't know if remantling is a word, but let's go with it. Um, uh, and so so there's that. And I think there's um, that, that, that location geopolitically and that I'm interested in in terms of uh, the history of 89, but um, I think in terms of earthquakes in general, some of the ways in which my work is, along with some other explorations I have not even talked about yet, um, I think it's increasingly preoccupied with environmental issues. Like, for me, it's still kind of like I'm just making a dumb painting. I'm not like, this is not like grand, you know, scale political action. But I think there's a way in which I'm moving slightly away from the social or the sort of human-based aspect or the figurative-based aspect of some of the work that I've done. And I'm getting more interested in the land itself. And I think there's this moment of like seeing photos of earthquakes where the earth is just torn apart and a freeway has just been ripped down and like they know there's devastation and tragedy attached to that. But I also kind of have this moment of like, it's a big fuck you from the earth. (laughs) There's something about that that I find really both um, thrilling and dramatic and um, somehow comforting. Like maybe maybe once humans are gone, it'll be for the best. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. There's a lot going on, yeah. Yeah, thinking about earthquakes and, and large-scale natural disasters, it seems like a natural continuation of some of the themes in your work before that you've expressed through the figure in terms of looking at... Um, at human stories of immigration and seeing individual narratives as part of a larger swell. And so in some ways it, it just seems like it's another, um, it's a scale up, but still exploring the same thing. Oh yeah, it's totally related. And I think it's, you know, for me in the position of somebody who's, you know, mixed ethnicity, very different national backgrounds, grew up a lot of different places in the world. Um, like liminality just governs everything for me. Like I don't, either, I don't very easily see either or. I always see right as what what's like in the in between zone. Mm-hmm. So even with the drawings of the Filipino nurses, they're always in this border zone. Like they're always kind of pushing through space. And for me, the moment with the earthquake images that I'm studying is so much about again that moment of the tear. That, that just right where the world are suddenly united. Mm-hmm. It's 1989. Yeah. It's the point when the fissure happens. Yeah. So like that's all. It's all tied together for me for sure. Mm-hmm. Like I look at the work and I'm saying. Well, it looks different, but oh yeah, you're pretty much a creature of habit, aren't you, all? <laughs> so, yeah. But that's the challenge, isn't it? It's to to take your habits and find a way to make them new, not just to yourself, but to your viewer. Yeah, and it's also like if, if you've read if you've read one Haruki Murakami novel, you've read pretty much all of them because they're the same damn novel in varying forms. But they're always, you know, you had a I binged on him some years ago, and mm-hmm. I kind of stopped, but. Um, there's a way in which like, there's still something satisfying to continue to interrogate a notion and, and, and um, just create variation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I, can see the, I can see that particularly with Murakami. It's interesting how if you ever do go on vendors with a certain artist or writer, you start to see their tropes. You know, Murakami, it's like the, um, the egregious cat references <laughs> and just the mysterious woman. And I was noticing that um, with Barbara Kingsolver and mm-hmm. all of her, her very tall female protagonists, mm-hmm. I think almost universally. Mm-hmm. So maybe it just means that you shouldn't go on vendors if you want to uh, continue to read somebody's work. Yeah. Well, I think the internet broke my brain, so I don't go on reading vendors like I once used to, sad. Do you feel like uh, the internet has broken your brain in any productive ways, or is it only... I just think my ability to research ideas um, and be just more aware of what's happening globally and be less sort of like in my weird little autistic bubble <laughs> um, is, is really fun and thrilling and helpful and connects me to the world in lots of ways that I couldn't have even, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and I love it. But I think that the, the trade-off is that splintering feeling of... You know the shallows that you know books have been written about. Mm-hmm. Like there's lots of this sort of superficial stuff, and there's not a huge amount of deep, long, slow investment. And I think I just feel extra conscious of it as, a, as an instructor who's dealing with you know 20-something-year-old students whose brains are not exactly broken, but maybe haven't learned a different way. Like when I talk about sustaining something, it's just it's so much harder for them. Partly that's just maturity. I don't know if I was any better when I was 20-something, but there's definitely a way in which like. Yeah, it, it's um, it's intense to sort of like I kind of know what I lost. <laughs> I think maybe there's still some shred of hope I can recapture it. Mm-hmm. And you know, with a lot of my youngest students, I'm I'm not sure. And maybe that's not fair. I don't want to ever feel like I'm being judgmental of young people because young people are just young people. But yeah, mm-hmm. just the idea that you know some somebody does have this relentless obsessive focus and repeats and revisits a notion over and over and over again in their work it's especially with writers I think more than visual artists sometimes I think that that is just an extraordinary thing mm-hmm. so. if you had to identify the tropes that you continually return to what would they be 
Well, I think we've already kind of covered some of them, but um, um, yeah, there's always something about this transitioning liminal space that comes up over again in work. Um, I think you know more than I realized for a long time. I'm very interested in history. You know, usually very specific histories, often marginalized histories, so that comes up in my work. Um, and, you know, I think just because of my deep love of comic books and illustration, I think that that's, that appears in varying ways. Um, and then comedy, I guess. I'm always interested in comedy, because otherwise I'd probably fling myself off a cliff. <laughs> well, that sounded really bad. Um, I just feel like it's a solution. It's a creative solution to um, situations that are troubling. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Jennifer, you are both an artist and a teacher. Um, can you talk a little bit more about those different roles? Um, I don't honestly know how different they are. I think teaching is just sort of performance art with a captive audience for the most part. I think that there's something about the creative charge and the deadline-driven aspect of both, both, as, uh, both versions of both art and teaching that I like, uh, that I, th- I think I thrive um, in. There's something about understanding the relationship of art to audience or community that I I feel like I never lose track of. I'm not just there picking my nose. Like I, I feel like there's a connection that I, I I just love, and I think with teaching it's something very similar too. Like I'm both a weird combination of very antisocial but hypersocial. So um, feeling that connection feels really nice. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like it's in keeping with a lot of your work, where it, it doesn't want to be pigeonholed into one genre, and there's always a very interactive element to it. Um, and also, I was I was reading over um, your blog. I did some snooping before this interview, and really enjoyed looking at the syllabi that you create for your classes, and how you very much approach being a teacher as an artist first and foremost. Um, and it's really nice to see visual attention paid to that. Well, thank you, and I'm glad you found that entry. That's um, I you know took a break from blog for a while and now I'm sort of you know, puttering back into it a little bit but um, yeah I think that was one thing that was really missing for me with this, this idea of syllabi and as I look around at most of my you know friends who are teachers and I mean we're all really pretty badly guilty of it which is not like both thinking like artists in fairly unproductive ways when we're teaching but in that the key document the syllabus like most of us just have this deep lack of imagination it's just I don't know. Like, there's so much that can be done with this document, and I think if you've seen the Linda Blair, uh, the Linda Berry book on on syllabus, so amazing, such a wonderful, compassionate document. Like, um, it just really kind of got me to do to do more uh, with that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about your background? I know that you you mentioned briefly having grown up in a lot of different places, and that having given you a unique perspective. But can you elaborate a little more on how and where you grew up? Yeah, it's um, San Francisco born is uh, where it begins. It it, it being me. <laughs> um, my <coughs> my dad is Caucasian American. My mom is Filipino American. Um, my mother immigrated to the U.S. when she was probably about sixteen um, from Guam, where she'd been living since she was twelve. Before that, she'd been in the Philippines. So my mom has sort of a slightly different. Filipino immigration story too. She arrived in the U.S. in the 50s, so this is all part of the backstory in terms mm-hmm. of there being certain kinds of Filipino immigration and certain kinds of American history. So, so my parents meet in Thailand, as one does, um, <laughs> where my father was working for my mother's brother. It's a long and complicated story, but it goes all the way back to there in some weird ways. 
Um, but so, you know, they both managed to move back to the Bay Area around the same time, eventually got married, had a kid or two. Um, but by the time I was, I was two years old, my father had taken a job with a company that moved us to Hong Kong. So from when I was two until I was seven, I was growing up in Hong Kong. Um, when I was seven, his company transferred him to Dubai. So I grew up in the United Arab Emirates until I was about nine and a half. Um, then transferred, then he was transferred to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, at which point I was in school there from ages nine through 14, and then moved back to California just in time to start high school in the suburbs, Walnut Creek. <laughs> Um, you know, we have, we've always had family in the Bay Area, in Northern and Southern California, so um, when you grow up overseas like that, you often, you know, do your home leave in, in the U.S. So it's not as if I didn't grow up around California culture, and if anything, growing up overseas meant that I was a little bit more obsessed with trying to acquire California culture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have just really terrible, terrible memories of obsessively trying to study and learn what a Valley Girl accent would be like <laughs> in that moment, and so, like, many women have my generation, we are now stuck with the perpetual light in our conversation because it never went away. So, um, but yes, I acquired that just through sheer, like, you know, rigorous study in Malaysia. I don't know. So complicated. Got the Filipino mom, got the, you know, Caucasian American dad, got the, didn't really grow up in the U.S. or the Philippines, um, and um, grew up kind of perpetually uh, on the outside of whatever culture I was in, but from a position of privilege. You know, my dad had a good job. I was going to private international schools. It's not like, uh, it was not a hard scramble existence. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's important to name too, because then going from that into sort of just general sort of California suburban life um, and, and kind of years of up and down feast or famine, finances in the family and in my own personal life for sure. Um, and then eventually becoming a public school teacher in the Bay Area. Um, you're really kind of dealing with economic disparity constantly. Um, I just feel like it's all those things happening in my younger years have sort of shaped a, a brain that sees a lot of different perspectives constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I, yeah, it governs all the creative decisions I make. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a very unique versatility, both as an artist and as a teacher. On the good days, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, so one of um, your projects that I'm really interested to hear more about is your Mail Order Brides trio. Can you elaborate on that for oh, our listeners? Geez, yeah. So Mail Order Brides slash Mob, which is our official name that is such a mouthful that nobody ever says it like that. Most people just call us the Mob because that's really what we thought was so funny about our name. So we, uh, I collaborate with uh, Rianne Estrada and Eliza Barrios. We've been working together for almost 20 years now. Um, and we basically took the name for our collective based on this idea that was still somewhat notorious in the 90s, which was that, you know, Filipino women were basically just these sexually submissive sort of perfect domestics, and we sort of thought that um, there were maybe some problems with that being a general sort of racist and sexist stereotype. Um, you know, so, yes, the name sort of male autoboid slash mob came out of that moment. And the work was never particularly angry, despite, like, some of the implications of that name. We've always done this super, super kind of high-camp um, performative work that sort of plays with sort of these stereotypes as opposed to sort of, um, I think, um, sh- kind of shrieks stridently against them. <laughs> and I think, honestly, when we were in our 20s, we were just trying to figure out our mothers. <laughs> like, you know, now we are our mothers, so it's 
<laughs> it is what it is. Um, and the work has definitely evolved over that long. Um, and long breaks in between our, our gigs because all three of us are individually practicing artists. And Rianne, for the past decade, has lived in Los Angeles. So that has also sort of put something of a damper on like working together more regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we still do it because um, it's funny to us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're kind of governed by that, uh, first and foremost. So, Can you, uh, you say that your work is campy, and uh, knowing or having seen some of the, the documentation of mail order bride slash mob, yes, that is a mouthful. Um, I'm going to say mob at this point. All right, yeah. having some familiarity with what mob does, I, I know what you mean when you say campy, but can you, can you talk about just how over the top this gets? Um, Oh, like God. your most recent project. This is what I'm hurting you towards. Talk about that. Yes. So um, we've been getting a, a sort of, uh, I guess, a decent amount of um, attention for a project we've been doing for almost two years now called Manan on Google, which is, this gets really meta and confusing. But so there's there's me and Rhiannon and Eliza, and then we are the male order brides. But then the male order brides are also, or the mob, are also now their own shadow corporation called Manan on Google, which is a sort of, um, what do you call it, a portmanteau? Mm-hmm. Uh, of Mananangal, which is a Filipina vampire sort of witch creature, uh, and of course Google. Mm-hmm. Um, but originally the project started as us sort of looking at, I think, this general way in which women in any position of power are sort of demonized in so many ways, um, but are also sort of our fascination with a certain kind of 80s glamour, which like, you know, the Leona Helmsley sort of head of the boardroom, like trying to figure out, I'm forgetting some big other icons of the, of the era, but, you know, short hair, big shoulder pads, um, Rules with an Iron Fist. I guess we could just throw Thatcher in there for fun. Um, <laughs> but there was also... So we were just kind of loving that moment of the... Somewhere in our absurdist Filipino-American logic, taking this this mythology that happens in the Philippines. It really happens. Every culture has some sort of misogynist witch-like sort of legend about the you know the woman with too much power at the edge of the village you got to watch out for. She's going to eat your children or whatever. Um, she's trouble. She's rarely if ever like Glenda the Good Witch. Um, and so in the Philippines, this, this myth of the Aswang or the Mananangal, depending on which name you like, um, is a woman who basically, I think during full moons in particular, like her upper body separates from her lower body, and the upper body sails through the night air looking for fetuses and babies to eat, um, and the lower half just kind of basically plants until, you know, it's reunited. Um, so, I don't know, how do I describe the work physically from there? Um... It started as a series of, of very formal, stylized, almost like corporate photo, uh, photos of us in sort of full 80s kind of corporate drag. Um, and the photos kind of evolve over a very short sequence into us sort of um, feeding on what appear to be entrails and then splitting into two parts. And then sort of like the last image in the series is just um, our lower torsos left behind in the boardroom where you don't really know where our upper torsos have gone. Um, so, since the original photo, sort of photographic version of the project, we ended up doing a couple different large-scale kind of performance events where we actually did a huge corporate onboarding, where we trained about 60 of our new employees in the Mananang Google way of life, um, and we took a very, very gendered approach to that, dividing the you know the male-identified members of our audience from the female-identified members of the audience, and sort of made the men kind of stand in a corner, high heads down, sort of covering their crotches. <laughs> um, and, you know, gave women lots of sort of training activities that involved sort of stretching out and taking up space and this kind of stuff. And, you know, again, we did this in a you know pretty campy, 
playful way because it's you know even though there's a really long and sort of undisputed history of sort of male dominance in the workplace you still have a fun event like this and you've got the men in the corner like you know feeling abused you, you kind of need to find a way to make that kind of light somehow <laughs> and you know a lot of our, our our participants were you know friends or acquaintances so they kind of knew what they were getting self into so they ran on the joke to some degree mm-hmm. but um, it was. I think we traumatized a few people in, in healthy ways. <laughs> I really like that way of putting it. Well, you know, I have one. I, you know, it's weird. I think because I, when I was younger, there was a brief stint where I worked for a fetish photographer, just basically helping. You know, nothing like posing for him, just like you know, washing the rubber dresses and hanging them up to dry and organizing the studio and sending out videos of the one-legged chick to some guy in Germany. But I was around BDSM culture. Um, in a way that was, you know, it wasn't my culture, but it was interesting to kind of see, oh, power, oh, power dynamics, oh, yeah. And in doing this performance piece, watching um, certain members of the audience really kind of, uh, I think, respond very, very positively to being punished. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of fun. I think I have one male friend who every time he sees me coming almost two years after this performance, he just goes, eyes down, because that's what we were about. And he, like, immediately puts his head down, covers his crotch, and, like, pigeon toes his feet. And I think he just kind of gets off on it. <laughs> so. Um, so, one of the one of the things I'd like to talk about briefly, because this idea of being mixed race and sort of moving around a lot um, comes up frequently, both in your work and in the conversation that we're having, um, is I thought it would be fun to talk about how you and I first met. Um, would you like to tell that story, or should I tell it? Well, uh, we can have this Rashomon moment of telling our versions of it. <laughs> Just that I was with my other demented, you know, mixed-race friend, Catherine Wehara. Um, <laughs> she was, yeah, I was staying with her, and uh, she proposed that we go out to T-Doc, and, um, I don't know, just have a bathe or a sun, a sun in or something, and... Um, we went out on the dock, and you were there with a friend whose name I'm forgetting right now. Laura. Laura, yes. Um, and we just, I don't know, we all just kind of fell into easy conversation, and I kind of figured out pretty quick that you and I were on similar frequencies. You just, you were a younger, more fit version. <laughs> uh, not nearly as complacent or lazy as I am. Uh, so <laughs> there was a way in which I think we very kind of quickly figured out that there was some something else going on there in terms of our... our beyond just sort of basic mixed kid stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the part of our meeting that I liked is how um, I think being sort of mixed race in a not necessarily discernible fashion, um, you recognize it in other people of similar backgrounds in- instantly, mm-hmm. and the three of us seeing each other and saying, oh, what sort of Asian mix are you? Yeah. And then us deciding, because we all have kind of a sense of humor about it, um, that we should fulfill Asian stereotypes and go get noodles. Yes. And this was good noodles. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it's fitting that we, we met in this way of at some random dock in Seattle um, and bonded over noodles and then it turned out creatively we uh we ask a lot of the same questions yes it's um yeah it's it's yeah the mixed race thing you either get depending on how you grew up you can either be really touchy and defensive about it because i know i have friends who just hate being asked so what are you or it's like it doesn't bother me at all um, but it also depends on how you're being asked or who's asking if you mm-hmm. suspect they have an agenda attached to how they're asking um yeah, I think for me, just I've never had a moment where I've 
hadn't even an illusion that I was part of something, like a, like a majority of people around me. And that hasn't felt like an obstacle. It's just like, I just take it for granted. Like, I've never just been one of many like me. Like, I, the closest I maybe come to feeling like that is when I'm in, like, around a ton of Filipino-Americans. But even then, I'm very immediately clear that not just because of the mixed race thing, but because I didn't grow up religiously, like, so many Philams are very, very, you know, faithful folks. Or they're trying to, like, deal with the fact that they've moved away from the church. Whereas that's just not even bag- baggage for me. I don't even get it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so anyway, I think it's that moment of just feeling, um, I feel like having a constant and healthy sense of irony, which... Mm-hmm. You know, without getting cynical or sarcastic about it, I think is embedded in my version of mixed race identity. Yeah, one of the things that I'm I'm interested in is it seems like there's so much fluidity to everything that you do. Um, and right now at the project room, we're we're talking about monuments. You know, things that are fixed that specifically commemorate something. Um, and so, from your perspective, as somebody who who doesn't seem to have many fixed points, what what is a monument for you? It's so funny to think about the question monument, just that, I guess only because like my, um, my undergrad years as an artist, I was a sculpture major, and I was, then I really liked figurative sculpture, and I really loved the history of, of, um, of commemorative statuary and, and, and monuments. Not all of them, I mean, there's tons of crap out there, but <laughs> there was a way in which I sort of liked the monolithic embodiment, but I also liked figurative work a lot when I was younger, so there was a way in which it was also a very easy thing to sort of enjoy. Um, I think that there's something to that sense of um, solidity and permanence that uh, I did not experience in that way as, as a young person, and uh, I find it sort of mysteri- endlessly mysterious and fascinating that there is this idea that something might endure or came before me and will outlast me that um, a monument I think can imply at times at least in the old fashioned sense of it so there's that um, yeah it sounds like your interest is almost more academic than personal well I don't know they're all tangled up with me of course um, <laughs> No, it feels it does actually feel really personal still somehow. Like I actually wrote when I was in um, grad school, I wrote like a twelve page paper on just a giant sculpture, which was everything from like the giant Paul Bunyan statue you see up at the uh, one at the border, mm-hmm. like uh, the one that's in Klamath, I think. Yeah, I'll be passing that in a couple yeah, days. <laughs> yeah, say hi to Paul for me. Well, just the weird like yeah, things are on scale. I think that are just endlessly funny to me. Mm-hmm. That are also just sort of wonderful this idea that there are things that are bigger than us, that they have a different kind of power over us. Like, whether that's a giant Buddha sculpture, or the giant Christ the Redeemer in Rio de Janeiro, or... Um, yeah, um, but one of my favorite sculptures of all time, which I don't know that qualifies as a monument, but me and a friend were driving through central Malaysia, probably also about a decade or so ago, and um, we ended up just going through this... We were just like middle of nowhere we just ended up staying the night in this town called Gemas in central Malaysia which is like nowhere still like we kind of got like the flea bitten three dollar sort of bed with the fan and the Chinese hotel that was actually still open all night so woke up the next morning only to realize we were like in the durian center of, of Malaysia if you know anything about durian fruit mm-hmm. these massive whole, you know smelly fruits smelly is not giving them credit they yeah, are disgustingly vile, pungent. Yeah. I mean, there there are subway cars that have no durian signs on them because they smell that strongly. <laughs> Absolutely, like you can't not have an opinion on the matter of the durian. Yes. 
But so we wake up in Gemas, Malaysia, and as we're driving out of town, we pass what appears to be like a 20 to, I don't know how tall it was, probably let's just say 20-ish feet tall, giant welded steel durian, which is just the most violently absurd, like (laughs) every spike was just like this five-pointed star that was just, and it just looked like you could just take this thing and kill somebody with it. It was just... The best thing I think I've ever seen, <laughs> up until the portable toilet thing started happening. But there was something about um, a, a monument to sort of, I guess, within that area, you know, their agricultural history or, you know, their insane love of this terrifying fruit. But also just the way in which it was sculpted that I just loved. I mean, how much time and labor was put into making this, this ridiculous thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, so outside of sort of, you know, like say Statue of Liberty kind of statuary, mm-hmm. this Durian, the giant Durian sculpture for me just makes it. Well, you have to wonder how it was funded. Who paid for that? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I have no idea. I think it might have just been like, you know, some guy's cousin who had like, the, you know, the steel shop. I have no idea. Yeah, but even, I mean, that much steel is so mm-hmm. expensive that, mm-hmm. huh. I'm really intrigued by this now. But this is like, if you've you've seen on my website that there's kind of weird spiky durians. Yes. It is that durian. It's not just (laughs) durians. It is very specifically that durian in central Malaysia and Gemas. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, that nobody knows about. At these days, probably it's on the internet somewhere, right? But 10 years ago, it was not on the internet. (laughs) So, And I do um, feel like that's one of the things that the internet has, it's taken the fun out of holding secrets in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's good that more people will be able to see that giant anachronistic durian, but it must have, I don't know, I imagine there must have been a, an element of feeling like you almost doubted your own memories if you couldn't find any proof of it. Yeah. Oh, well, I definitely took my own pictures of it. So, yeah. But yeah, there's, there was something about the magic of the, mm-hmm. the total joy of that moment of absurdity that just, yeah love. Like, love that somebody spent that much time on a monument to this thing. Because, you know, monuments say so much about people's values. Mm, absolutely. So, um, yeah. I could take that over sort of a giant statue of, you know, Christ the Redeemer any day. Mm-hmm. So, you, you mentioned in passing a little while ago um, that monuments uh, tied in with porta-potties. So, can you... <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your relationship with porta potties. The other thing we should also mention in this podcast is that part of our early bonding session was sort of a, you know, a moment around the sort of the importance of portable toilets. Yes, not just sort of like you know utilitarian objects, but you know, magic portals to other worlds. Mm-hmm. And well, and you sent me down a trajectory that I, I never would have followed otherwise because after that conversation that we had about porta potties, it just made me um, very aware of them and. They always kind of told me little stories, but I never thought about sharing them until I had met someone else who had this interest in them. So you took what was always an internal observation and made it for me. You're welcome. <laughs> this is probably going to make no sense without context. I kind of like it that way. Maybe you can just make a little supplemental gallery there. Yeah, we usually do. But, but yes, we bonded over portable toilets. Yeah. Portable toilets... First, it started as a joke between another friend of mine in the Bay Area and I, where we were commuting to work together one morning, and we were very, very tired, and the truck in front of us as we approached the Bay Bridge was towing a portable toilet, and as it approached a split in the ramp, the portable toilet magically got, uh, became unhitched from the truck and went down one ramp, and the truck went down another ramp, 
And Elisa and I just stared, and we were both kind of barely awake because it was very early and we had not had our coffee yet. And the only explanation for this was magic. <laughs> so, in a way, that became sort of the charged moment of the portable toilet, just being like, <gasps> this this otherworldly, you know, moving by its own sort of, you know, devices uh, thing to me. Uh, and then over the years, after I was traveling a lot, um, I just very casually and occasionally would send pictures to Elisa of portable toilets I would encounter as travel while traveling. But it really wasn't until really moving to Europe in 2009 um, and to particularly to Prague, which is, of course, an incredibly lovely city with lots and lots of history and lots and lots of monuments and statues and churches and... Um, and of course lots and lots of construction and restoration projects that you would see portable toilets juxtaposed uh, against the most beautiful sublime backgrounds and I think for me there just became this kind of perfect relationship between them and especially traveling in Europe and I think just having just a compulsively post-colonial mentality about everything and for me always wanting to question notions of empire for me there's always just something wonderful it was just like just the the toilet humor joke, like, at the site of Empire, for me, just was really, really important. So, so my portable toilets in general, places like construction sites, don't always do it for me. There's something about their their juxtaposition, their situation to sort of, like, power and history and empire that I'm most interested in. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's just a funny joke, and it's about poo, but it is completely and utterly, at this point for me, tied up in, like, that, that absurd con- contradiction and contrast. But then also just having been a photographer my whole life, but not always pursuing that as like a primary focus for my art career, mm-hmm. um, it's also just become a compositional challenge, like trying to figure out how to make an artful photograph of a portable toilet in a lovely situation mm-hmm. <laughs> becomes the other part of the game. Yeah, and you described that project really beautifully, so I'm going to quote you back at yourself again, um, where you said that you find portable toilets at, quote, sites of fallen empire, decaying faith, and hapless urbanity. Unquote, which I thought was just perfect, and I think that's part of the reason that <laughs> when we get our when we get our shared portable toilet tattoos together, you know. <laughs> um, but no, it's it's this really interesting juxtaposition because it's the intersection of the new with the old and the loss of culture, and there's just so much rich complication in the porta potty, um, and it, it's interesting that I think, but we've both observed that people respond to porta potty art. Um, with a, a personal depth that is sometimes surprising. It's very true. Yeah. I think that and you, that you can project so much into a portable toilet. Absolutely. No pun intended. <laughs> um, yeah, and it is interesting to see who posts portable toilets to my Facebook page and why, um, mm-hmm. what they think I might like. And I'm like, no, no, I don't like toilets in general. I'm glad that you think I have that humor. But it's very interesting to see what it triggers for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think there's a, what's also tied up in it for probably for me and for others is uh, I was never a Doctor Who fan, but there's a way in which you really cannot sort of erase, at least for many people who, who watched a lot of Doctor Who, the image of the TARDIS, of the sort of the, mm-hmm. the booth that he travels in, as being very portable toilet-esque. And I think that that, of course, then is charged with that same sort of magic power as a, to be a portal to another dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really only watched the show a couple times as a kid, so I don't. But I think that it's still in, embedded in there as mm-hmm. a, a magic portal. Yeah, for and most of us. we have this fascination with transformation, and mm-hmm. so there's this idea that there's this this little booth, and not only um, do you change when you go in it, your environment changes. And yeah, there 
I don't understand going into the old phone yeah. booths. I mean, we then we used to have phone booths in the United States once upon yeah. a time. We no longer have phone booths, <laughs> so even there, I kind of wonder what happened to all of them. Like, were they just yeah. sold for scrap? Did people know. adopt them? I don't know. I don't know either. Often curious about it. Yeah. But I feel like the, the portable toilet is almost like a court jester, you know, like that. It, to me, it functions in that same arena of grandeur that, you know, the court jester does and mm-hmm. kind of court of royalty. So, <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, that's where my brain yeah. well, and goes there. We should mention that you have, you've made two books around this project. Well, uh, yes, I have. Both of which are available through your website. Yes. I have <laughs> Portable Toilets of the Western World, Volumes 1 and 2. I'm presently at work on Portable Toilets of the Western World and Occupied Territories, uh, Territories Volume 3, <laughs> which will include places like Hawaii, which I would not say are really part of the Western world so much as an occupied territory, uh, and the Philippines and Singapore, and, you know, it just really depends on where I go traveling this summer, mm-hmm. um, because that does govern some of my decision-making, is whether I can take a portable toilet photo there. I love that. I love that that actually factors into your travel decisions. When I did an artist residency in Norway about three years ago, um, I was excited to do this residency because portable toilets. But then I was increasingly dismayed and anxious because I could not find portable toilets anywhere because the Norwegians are so damn evolved that they now have these whole kind of proper building structures that they bring to work sites that do not look at all like portable toilets. And I had to make inquiries at the Artist Residency Center. They're like, oh yeah, we use oh, this kind of portable toilets only for like music festivals and things like that. So of course you went to a music festival? No, I got the, I, 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 I got um, an introduction made to the uh, portable toilet company of Songnes, Norway, and took like three different buses to go to where they store them all, <laughs> which is definitely a little outside of my normal sort of thing. Like I like to photograph them in their natural sort of mm-hmm. site, but this is in fact where they, they, they sleep, so I felt like maybe that would be okay. So yes, I, I went to Malthus, the headquarters for portable toilet distribution in, in southwestern Norway, and the guy there, Norwegians are very deadpan. He's like, gave me a tour, didn't even like acknowledge that there was something absolutely <laughs> ridiculous about the lady artist from America coming to take pictures of portable toilets for art. He was like, oh yeah, here you go. Um, yeah, so that's... that. That was one problem with that. That is a risk you take with traveling. Is you mm-hmm. don't always know if there's portable toilets. I wasn't sure if there were going to be any in the Philippines because it had been five years since I was there last, and I mm-hmm. wasn't quite as fixated back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but lo and behold, I found more than a couple. So I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Well, thanks again for yeah. uh, making time to meet with me. My pleasure. Yeah.